And we are here. That's uh, minor technical glitches here today on the Green Majority at CIUT, but we're going to get through it anyway. You are listening minus the intro music, unless you're listening on the podcast or one of our syndicates, at which point I will put this back in. You're still listening to The Green Majority. Uh, here on CIUT uh, 89.5 FM, uh, we have a couple of extremely good guests today. Second up, a little bit after uh, the middle way part through the program, we're going to speak to Dr. Gordon Edwards, who's the head of the Canadian Center for Nuclear Responsibility, uh, as well as we have coming up in just a minute, we're actually going to be talking to uh, Doug Ulthus, who's the executive director of the Canadian branch of the United Steelworkers Union, about the humanities fund. However, before we are able to do that and before we get Doug on the line, uh, Stefan, we have a, a big news item as well that I just want, let's just get it out there. Let's not, let's let's just acknowledge this elephant in the room. Okay. Uh, really quickly, your immediate reaction to the uh, NDP election in Alberta. Uh, I'm super excited to see where this goes. Yeah. Uh, I, which is funny, actually, there, I saw a prediction, which I think actually may be the most accurate prediction I saw, which was, this could go one of two ways. Oil prices go back up and everyone loves the NDP, or they stay low and everyone continues to hate them. Uh, not because not because I think they're not going to do any good things or anything that's going to happen, but like the conservatives, everyone was happy when the conservatives were making tons of money and not having taxes. Uh, so if 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 the if their oil prices don't go up, there's there's no way the NDP can shift an economy that quickly. That's still hugely oil based, and so unless there's actually some sort of like if you don't see a rebound in the oil in the oil in four years, the, the conservatives are going to come back and basically say, "Hey, you guys didn't do anything," even though in absolutely no way could they have actually inputted enough stuff to do anything right. So there's a so we'll see. Uh, I, I I really hope to some extent that we do some see some you know that that we see an increase in oil prices if only because it will let it will give the NDP a longer rope to actually implement some of the more interesting policies that they want to imp- implement. Uh, but uh, but if it doesn't, then we'll have probably in four years we'll have a very nasty campaign again. Yeah, I think that, I think there's two thir- two things and possibly two things only we can say with certainty at this point. Uh, one of them is that someone's going to be very unhappy with this government, mm-hmm. and so it might be. And and what I mean by that. Was was that, you know, um, uh, the uh, new premier has been uh, saying a lot, you know, don't worry to the oil companies, we're going to work with you, which normally I, that, would la- that sort of language would make my skin crawl, mm-hmm. uh, except that I think she seems to maybe mean it in the right sort of way. Um, which is the don't worry, we're not going to crash the economy, but that doesn't mean we're not going to make some changes. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's not like, you know, <laughs> we're not going to start blowing stuff up. Uh the other people that might be extremely disappointed on the other way around is that, you know, depending on where that barometer lines, because we don't really know how this is going to play out yet, is the uh, is the environment groups. Because I've also been seeing a, a bunch of stories saying like, oh, good, now our person's in, which is I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, it may it may prove yet to be true uh, if the environment groups, what they're looking for is maybe a diversification of income in, Al- in Alberta slowly in a transitional way over a period of time and maybe a better deal for some tax money and, and maybe do some things with that money. Then I think that's realistic that it's possible, but it's a not certain and and b I don't think it's the type of change that everyone was like oh good now we're having complete everything's totally different and and you know uh, I don't I don't think that's going to happen either. Yeah, I think I think that if anything this reminds me of uh, the chant for the environmentalist reminds me very similar of my favorite 350 chant, uh, which is stew uh, of tea. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> that'd be a weird one to say. Call it to our uh, friends too. Uh, which is actually um, what like it's one what do we want fossil fuel investment uh, and then the second line is but in this case what do we want for a price on carbon when do we want it gradually over five years <laughs> uh, because that's the huge thing if they can actually get a a, a, a more effective you know Alberta does currently have a price on carbon we get a more effective price on carbon 
then we have the three, the, the four biggest economies in Canada with the price on carbon. And to some extent, given the power that provinces have, maybe Harper and is uh, is less relevant than he uh, uh, than he's would be happy to be. All right. Well, I think we're going to go to our uh, interview now as well. So uh, uh, Doug Althus, the executive director of Canadian branch of United Steelworkers Union, should be on the line. Are you there? I am indeed, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, oh, it's uh, it's actually Darren. Okay. Um, here it's uh, Kevin as well as in the studio, as well as my other co-host, uh, Stefan Hostetter. Uh, my first question for you is, uh, is how close did I get your last name? I do apologize. Um, no, close enough. It's fine. <laughs> it's somewhat of a tradition here on, on Green Majority Radio for me to get people's last names wrong. So uh, thank you very much for, for taking some time this morning to uh, talk to us. Um, this is, a, in some ways, a very simple story and in some ways a very involved story. So I think just so that we're all on the same page here, uh, would you just take a few minutes and, and before we sort of get into what the current uh, CRA issue is, just, just talk about uh, United Steelworkers Union and its relationship to the Humanity Fund and then we'll get into the relationship to, to CN, uh, CNCA. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, the Steelworkers Union, we've got about 200,000 members in Canada in the union in all sectors of, uh, of the economy. Some of our biggest local unions, for example, are not in traditional manufacturing industries or in mining. We, for example, through our local 1998, represent clerical and admin folks, researchers at the University of Toronto. So it's a quite a diverse union. Um, the union is starting in 1985 in response at that time to the Ethiopian, Ethiopian famine decided to establish a registered charity that would be financed through charitable contributions from union members. Um, so the union established the Steelworkers Humanity Fund, which, as I say, is a registered charity. We generate about $1.5 million a year in uh, revenue from uh, steelworker members, all voluntary contributions. And, and so if I remember the notes on that uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, a couple of pennies an hour, and then that works out to about 20 to 40 bucks a year per union member, if they so choose? No, Is that's that right. Yes, we negotiate a payroll deduction clause into the collective agreement. It started uh, at one cent an hour, and in some places it's been stuck there. Um, in other places, it's increased. But you're right. Yes. Okay. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about what, what are the, the menu of things that the Humanities Fund works on. We've, we essentially do three or four different kinds of things. Um, one of the things we do is respond to international emergencies. So, for example, most people would be aware of the earthquake in Nepal. So the Humanity Fund, because we do have a fund that's been collected ahead of time, is able to respond quickly to those kind of emergencies. So in that kind of case, we contribute to an international organization or, if we know one, a, a local organization that's familiar with the area that can actually deliver emergency relief. So that's one of the things we do. But uh, we realize that that kind of work, while very important, doesn't change the world. And we're interested in kind of building economies where poverty is addressed and workers' rights are respected. So we've got a program of uh, international a series of international development projects. Typically, we work with uh, different trade unions, worker organizations, providing mainly capacity building training. Uh, most people in the global south um, that are progressive know what to do, so we're not teaching them what to do. We're just providing some resources so they could implement some of their own um, own ideas. Um, and then we also have a worker exchange program where we bring steelworker members to the global south to experience firsthand how some of the 
um, impacts of the global economy are felt here and abroad, and what the links are between those two things. So that's kind of the three uh, the, the three areas. Oh, sorry, I should add one more thing. We also contribute to food banks in Canada. Um, each year, we contribute about one hundred and fifty thousand to food banks across the country. So, uh, Doug, that stuff all sounds like general uh, uh, charitable type stuff. Those are the types of things you would expect a charity to do. There's also that uh, if I'm if I'm getting the numbers correctly here from from what I've read, that accounts for about ninety eight percent of of what you're putting money on, um, and about two percent approximately um, goes to the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. Uh, first of all, can you confirm that that's correct? And then let's talk about what that two percent goes to. Yeah, it's it's more or less correct. The um, you're, the the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability is an umbrella organization of different progressive organizations in Canada, um, including Amnesty International, Kairos, um, Mining Watch Canada, different unions. The Canadian Labour Congress is also part of it. Um, Development and Peace. So it's, it's, it represents quite a broad range of organizations in Canada, all of whom are advocating for corporate accountability, particularly in the extractive sector oil and gas industry and the mining sector and what we're talking about here is accountability for what these corporations do outside of canada in their overseas operations so we've identified an international accountability gap which essentially means that people who are victims of human rights abuses or alleged human rights abuses or violations of their rights overseas often can't get Justice. They don't have access to justice because either the corporation there has all the economic and political power or the legal system is non-existent or corrupt. But for whatever reason, these people are powerless to assert their rights in uh, in courts in, in their their home country. So what we're saying is Canada has a responsibility in that case to provide these these people, communities, workers, um, with an avenue to address the injustice. And we believe Canada can help do that by establishing an ombudsman for the extractive sector that would hear complaints, do independent investigations, and then make some kind of uh, finding declaration public um, to highlight the case. And the other avenue would be to allow people to take civil to sue, essentially, to take uh, civil litigation in Canadian courts and and try to prove their case in Canada. So that's quickly what the you know the umbrella group of the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability does. And as a member of that organization, yes, the Humanity Fund has contributed both staff time and funds to the. Uh, um, to that organization, and between the staff time and the funds, that, that you are correct. That does come out to about two or three percent of our expenses in uh, 2013. So before we get into the the specific issue here now of where where we're at sort of today, which is the uh, CRA um, uh, issue with the audit, um, let's just put a fine point on on sort of precisely what we're talking about here. And in in a lot of countries, uh, it it seems uh, routine for uh, mining corporations to have so much power that they routinely like do things like bribe police to serve eviction notices. And uh, there's all sorts of there's there's uh, you know tons and tons and tons of reports of 
uh, sexual violence and and just like it, we're talking about really bad stuff here. They're not we're not talking about sort of minor violations of you know bureaucratic policy. We're talking about major human rights violations here. No, that's correct for sure. So when we're when the reason I put uh, pointed out the uh, the two percent is would you just explain for people now as we sort of move in we'll we'll deal with sort of where we're at today with this um, why is the two percent number relevant uh, and can you just explain that sort of ten percent split in the uh, in the charitable status law right so registered charities in Canada um, must ensure that all all money they receive and then spend is spent on charitable activity. Um, so then the question becomes, well, what is charitable activity? There's not a specific um, law, if you can believe it, that clearly defines what that is in Canada. But Revenue Canada or the Canada Revenue Agency has uh, guidelines which say that if you undertake political activity that normally is not a charitable activity, but it could be a charitable activity um, if it's a nonpartisan. So not Partisan political activity is strictly prohibited for a registered charity. That means, for example, the Steelworkers Humanity Fund cannot support a political party. That's just not allowed. But what the what a charity can do is do a limited amount of advocacy if it's related to the their charitable mandate. And the 10% that you refer to is that CRA has said, okay, if the political advocacy that you do is small and is related to your broader charitable mandate, it's allowable, but you can't spend more than 10% of your resources, and that includes staff time and actual dollar outlay. Um, so that's where the, the 10% comes in, and all charities in Canada have to report each year um, what uh, their, their finances essentially uh, disclose their, their finances to, Reven to Revenue Canada, to CRA, and one of the things that you have to report on specifically is charitable activity. So the 3% that we reported was for the year 2013 on that political activity. So it's, where you're at now is that the Canadian Revenue Agency is... Uh, would, you, would you actually just let us know exactly where it is? is it, are you uh, about to be audited? Is this, a, is this process ongoing? Well, I don't know how, how much your listeners have been keeping up to date, but the, the Tory government has discovered that there's bureaucratic processes that they can use to um, put their opponents, people who disagree with them, on the back foot, so to speak. So they've discovered that they can use uh, Canada Revenue Agency to, to do audits of different charities. They have that right. And they've essentially provided CRA with fund, additional funds to do what they call political audits. So there's about 60 organizations in Canada that have been targeted for what's called the political um, audit. The Steelworkers Humanity Fund was one of those. So we've, we got a note from CRA in uh, early, early 2014 saying we'd been selected for an audit. Of course, they didn't tell us um, why. They just said we were selected, and they were in our offices um, the first week in July for a week in 2014. So it's been about uh, 10 months since they were here, and they, of course, have the um, the ability to ask for all kinds of financial data or, or program-related data to do an evaluation to make sure that a charity like ours is complying with the uh, the law and is undertaking charitable excuse me, charitable activities. So they were here in July. Since then, we have not heard anything from them. 
Um, so we don't really know where our audit sits right now. They have not asked for further information. Neither have they told us everything is okay. Neither have they told us there's some changes that they'd like to see us make. So that's that's the status uh, of that at the moment. And so, I mean, just, you know, uh, correct me if I'm, I'm misunderst- misunderstanding or misinterpreting this, but, I mean, it sounds like, you know, and unless they were – Unless there was some sort of major accounting error, it would, from what you reported, you said you reported about two to three percent, which means that even if you'd been, let's say, let's call it an honest mistake, let's say that you'd been mistaken and you'd spent three times, three hundred percent what you'd spent, you'd still be a one percent under the limit. So, I think you said you got no justification. Can you think of any at all possible justification for this that is sort of above board as to why this would have been been looked at? Well, I mean, let me step back a little bit, right? If you, um, the Canada Revenue Agency does have a legitimate role in auditing charities. Um, um, I think that makes sense. But the cha- the audits have to be, I would think, uh, random and uh, um, reasonable. What the problem we've got here is that the charities that have been audited, the list doesn't seem to be random. The list seems to be made up of charities that have been in one way one way or another critical of the Harper government record. And we don't know of many organizations that have been supportive of kind of the neoliberal policies that the, the, the Harper government has put in place. People that support that don't seem to have gotten audited. So when you say, you know, why why was somebody like the Humanity Fund selected? Well, we believe it's because two things. One is our connection with the as the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, which we talked about earlier, um, which essentially is advocating for changes to uh, to Canadian policies that would perhaps go counter to the interests of Canadian mining companies, although if we had more time, I'd make the case that it's actually good for them as well, but that's not how it's essentially perceived. And the Steelworkers Union itself, which is the sponsor of the Humanity Fund, has been an outspoken critic of the Harper government all along. So if one believed that there was some bias in selecting charities to be audited, those would probably be the reasons why um, the Steelworkers Humanity Fund was on the list. But let me again stress, right, on an, on, a, on an ad hoc or random or individual basis, charities should be audited. I don't have a problem with that. It's like, you know, Revenue Canada also, or CRA, does random audits of individual taxpayers for their uh, income tax. Um, that's, that would seem normal. It's when it becomes a pattern that it's a problem. And we think we have identified a pattern, and we think there is a problem. And the issue isn't only that we've been um, selected and they might say something negative about our charity. It's the fact that um, it's being used to kind of intimidate people into silence in some to some degree. It's not only the outcome of the audit, because we believe we've operated fully in compliance with uh, our responsibilities and the law, but it does cause a lot of work and it creates a bit of a chill that other people have commented on as well. So maybe, uh, Doug, I want to thank you again for, for taking some time to, to join us today. Per, perhaps we can end on on that note. If you would uh, maybe just talk a little bit about what the effect has been. What is your what is sort of the your ability output to do work, and how has that been impacted by this entire process? Has it been sort of a minor annoyance, or has this been a major disruption to the ability of the Humanity Fund to actually operate during this period and up till now? 
Um, I, to be honest, the uh, the work involved in the month of June last year was significant, and it distracted us a lot. But since then, because we believe we're operating within the guidelines um, and within the law, we've proceeded to go forward. So we continue to be an active part of the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, and so that hasn't disrupted us. But if you uh, pursued other organizations, particularly in the environmental movement, it, it appears that there's been a real chill in the environmental movement among the environmental charities around this issue. In part, it hasn't affected us th- that much because our funding base is relatively secure um, within and, and our link to the steelworkers union, and the steelworkers aren't just going to back off. So the, the, the chill I'm talking about, I don't think it's fair to say has affected us. Could I... Um, um, if we're coming to an end, could I put a plug in for an event that we're we're having, though? Uh, go for it. Um, so the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, with um, the member groups of that um, organization, are holding actions across. Excuse me, across Canada on May the twelfth, and uh, there is going to be an online um, day of action using Twitter and Facebook. So for your listeners who are interested, on Twitter, it's uh, hashtag open for justice And open and then the number four and then justice, which will allow people to express their support for changes that will allow people outside of Canada to have access to justice when their rights have been violated by Canadian mining companies or oil and gas companies. All right. Well, that sounds uh, great. And Doug, and I'll, and I'll ask you to actually, if you send me that uh, information as well, I'll make sure it goes on the show post as well so that when people go and uh, look at the show post later, they'll be able to uh, easily access that information. Uh, again, Doug Althus, I want to thank you very much for your time, the Executive Director of the Canadian Branch of the United Steelworkers Union, talking about the Humanities Fund and the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. So we're going to go to our music break here. Our first break uh, will be... Uh, uh, our uh, first break here, uh, we'll uh, be coming back in just a moment to talk to Dr. Gordon Edwards uh, about uh, uh, just basically a general nuclear issues update. We're going to talk a little bit about the Tesla Powerwall announcement, uh, but a number of other issues, in, including some uh, some nuclear dumps that have been uh, approved and moving ahead. All that and more when we come back right after this music break.
right. And we are back here on The Green Majority. We're going to be going to our second interview in just a minute. But while we're uh, getting uh, Gordon Edwards on the phone... Uh, Kevin, do you have a, a quick comment? Uh, Stefan and I got our opinions in there uh, at the beginning when you were uh, assisting in the in the tech room about just a, a very brief, immediate emotional reaction to uh, the NDP win in Alberta. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. I, hi, everyone. Well, you know, congratulations to Alberta, uh, and the NDP, and Rachel Notley. Uh, you know, people, people, all, all kinds of people are doing all kinds of postmortems on this election for. It really, some stunning maladroitness from Jim Prentice, and some uh, some rather stunning adroitness from Rachel Notley. But uh, people, people, <laughs> certain certain people frothing at the mouth who shall rename Kev- who shall remain Kevin O'Leary. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, who are trying to paint this as some sort of like socialist coup in Alberta have just either lost track of or how far politics have veered to the right in this country or are trying to, you know, obfuscate that or they're just showing us what a bunch of whiny entitled brats the corporate sector have become over over the last few years. Uh, Rachel Notley's party strikes me. Uh, first of all, they're the Alberta NDP. <laughs> Factor that into your calculations. Um, they strike me as generally sort of a left of center party. Uh, her policies on the environment, I mean, I don't, I don't even think they had an environmental uh, plank in their platform. Like, environment was tucked in under some other uh, heading. Her position on pipelines is essentially real politic. She's not supporting uh, um, Keystone XL, but who would? That's as toxic as the bitumen it hopes to pump, and Obama's going to veto it. That, that would just be an entire waste of time. She's, uh, all, for the same reason, she's not uh, supporting... Um, uh, sorry, I'm mixing up my pipelines now. But Northern the, Gateway. Northern Gateway, thanks. But she's open to considering uh, uh, Energy East and, and Kinder Morton's Trans Mountain. They, this, is, this is hardly a revolutionary. That's just real politic. If the PCs had retained power and continued to waste time and money and effort, you know, foolishly pursuing those projects, I mean, they're free to do so. But anyone who's just saying what she's saying on pipelines is just essentially embracing reality. And she said, we have to make progress on the environment. Oh, oh my God. You know, uh, yeah, welcome to Climate 101 in the 21st century. This is, she reminds me more of uh, Peter Lockheed, who was the, the PC who founded the dynasty she just toppled. Uh, she reminds me more of, of like the PC, the original founder of that dynasty that she just toppled then, than she does of sort of any sort of like far left socialist environmentalist. And people trying to paint her or this election otherwise are just seriously, they've lost track of how far the goalposts have moved. She was actually the first one to make that comparison. I, I think that's what you, you need to pay, uh, pay attention to, what you're talking about, sort of the NDP of Alberta. Well, and I don't she, mean that she as can a make slight, that comparison but, all she wants, and that's yeah. fine because that would have had political. Uh, capital for her, I'm making it, you know, like without any sort of dog in this fight, except to say, you know, seriously, uh, congratulations, Alberta, on changing your government. That is fabulous. And this is this is a move forward for everyone, I think, on many issues. Uh, But but we we can't change the laws of physics. Uh, You can change your government, but you can't change the laws of physics. And frankly, that carbon needs to stay in the ground. So so, you know, if if you if you want if you want like the far the much more environmental skew on this, it would be mine, which is which is, you know, this is this is a step forward. But, you know, not we, we need we need to we need to we need we need to make a lot 
more progress on the environment than just, you know, a statement that we need to make more progress on the environment. <laughs> All right. We'll have to leave it there. We'll have a little bit more commentary uh, right at the end of the show. Two, two extremely quick announcements, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go to our phone guest. One of them was that uh, uh, Charles uh, Wilkinson from last week uh, made a request. I was to, we, we did a call out for music requests. If you've got one, if you'd like, if you have a Canadian song that you would like played on the show, email us on our website at greenmajority.ca. As I announced that, last week's guest, as he was in the studio, gave me his. So that was actually for Charles Wilkinson from last week. That was No Sinner by, uh, uh, sorry, the band is No Sinner, and the song is Bo Ho Ho. Uh, that'll be linked on the website. The other announcement was we have a, a pre, the day before the election post-op show that mm-hmm. Stefan and I did that's, uh, that's also part of our bonus show. You can learn out how you can watch that on the website at greenmajority.ca as well uh, for the sort of additional bonus content. Uh, without further ado, though, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Gordon Edwards from the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility back to the program. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Darren. How are you? Great. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you back. We've been on the show two or three times. I even had the, the good fortune of uh, me, having you here in the studio once. Uh, it's been too long, though, so we thought you, we would have you back on. Uh, you're, uh, the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility covers uh, really a wide range, uh, sort of the, the full gamut of, of nuclear-related issues. Uh, I've been a longtime member of your email list and get frequent updates about a wide variety of issues. So there's there's a ton of stuff I want to fly through today, but I just want to get through the one that I think probably is the most fluffy thing first. Let's just get it out of the way, uh, which was that we Tesla recently announced the power wall. And the only reason I'm bringing it up to you is that all the headlines, I'm assuming written by Elon Musk himself, <laughs> said, is this a nuclear killer question mark? So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe make a comment on on any response you had to that. Is it in fact the nuclear killer? Well, I think this trend certainly is a nuclear killer, and whether the Tesla battery is really going to live up to its expectations is still remains to be seen. Um, they have two versions of the home battery. Uh, one of them is uh, meant for daily use, and the other one is meant only for a backup. And it only goes through 50 recharging cycles, apparently, a year. So uh, it's not... It's not the magic bullet yet, but it's getting there very rapidly, and it's caused a great deal of excitement. Is my voice coming through okay? Uh, it is, yes. Okay, because I heard a good deal of static on the line. Oh. Um, the, the important thing to realize here is that, uh, is that for the moment, what's most important about the Tesla batteries is that they can be used by the utilities and by the large users to uh, get rid of off-peak power. Uh, instead of uh, firing up diesel generators to supply um, peak power, they can, uh, they can use these batteries to fill that gap, and this is already going to greatly improve the uh, emission situation, and it's paving the way for within 10 years, customers are going to be able to uh, actually defect from the grid uh, and have a totally self-sufficient uh, solar system of their own, and this is going to be starting to happen already, but it's going to be happening with increasing regularity over the next uh, decade, and uh, the whole the whole concept of baseload power is going to be called into question, and all the planning that has gone on by utilities is going to change, and that means that nuclear is going to have less and less of a significant role. Already, uh, solar energy plus batteries is cheaper than new nuclear, and it's getting to the point where it's going to be cheaper than uh, old nuclear as well, and nuclear that's already installed. Uh, as a result, you know that in, in Ontario, they're going to be shutting down the entire Pickering nuclear complex, eight reactors, uh, by 2020, 
And uh, in the United States, they're already shutting down nuclear reactors for purely economic reasons. They're just saying they can't afford to keep running them, given the competition. Yeah, my reaction to the news story, which I think you, sounds like you'd probably agree with, was that <clears throat> if it's a nuclear killer, it's not because this technology is, is, is quite there yet. It's because Elon Musk started a conversation, the brilliant marketer that he is, he started a conversation that essentially got through to people, I think a large number of people that, were, that are simply interested in tech news, um, that it really got the word out that really the only reason why we've been sort of so sweet on nuclear for so long is it's really just a matter of, of storage. And, and, well, uh, and as much as we all know that, I think a lot of people don't understand that, that that's really the only advantage it has. Well, that's, that's exactly right. I think, that, I think this has really been a kind of a thunderbolt for a lot of people. But those in the know have realized for a long time that it's inevitable that this happens because the price of renewables, solar and wind in particular, is, con- is always declining, whereas the price of nuclear is always increasing. And it's just elementary mathematics that these two lines are going to cross over. And many people say they have already crossed over, and already uh, we have uh, much cheaper sources of electricity than nuclear. So um, in addition, uh, when people talk about uh, the role of electricity, electricity is only one slice of the energy pie. If you want to enlarge that slice, you have to go into the transportation sector, which means electric vehicles. But, of course, the key to electric vehicles is storage. And as soon as you increase the storage capacity, you automatically benefit the renewables rather than nuclear because uh, the whole advantage of nuclear is that it can run 24-7, whereas the renewables are intermittent. But if you have storage solved, then uh, that's, that doesn't make any difference. Well, and I think the the best line uh, for the from the rep uh, that was making the announcement was the uh, and and I've heard it clipped out immediately and retweeted by a million people. A lot of people responded to this line, but it, I'm paraphrasing here. But he basically said, well, "The nuclear industry wants you to believe that we can more easily store nuclear waste for a hundred thousand years than we can store solar energy overnight." Yeah, and, and the man who said that is Arnie Gunderson, who used to be a vice president of a nuclear utility who is trained as a nuclear engineer, who worked for 23 years in the nuclear industry, and has now, since Fukushima, become uh, quite uh, uh, one of the most uh, outspoken critics of nuclear power and uh, opposed to the further development of this technology, simply because uh, its hazards far outweigh any benefits it has to offer. Let's move along to uh, the uh, kin, uh, kincardine nuclear waste uh, getting a federal seal of approval. So while we're talking about nuclear waste and, and the storage thereof, uh, can you give us an update on, on what's, going, uh, what's going ahead with that uh, nuclear dump site? Yeah, well, the really uh, shocking thing about this nuclear dump site is that it is, uh, number one, unnecessary, and number two, the, it's predicated on only one, there's only one rationale which would justify putting this waste underground at Kincardin. Uh, right by the shore of Lake Huron, less than less than a mile away from uh, Lake Huron. Uh, and the only reason for putting it underground is because they plan to abandon it there. In fact, uh, they even have, OPG has a environmental impact statement which lays out four phases of the project. Construction, emplacement of the waste, uh, closure of the facility, and phase number four is abandonment. So the whole purpose of this is to abandon the waste. Now, if you look at the map, you would say, why on earth would anybody choose to abandon this waste? And we're talking about all of the nuclear waste from all of the nuclear reactors in Ontario, except for the spent fuel, all the other nuclear waste. And that includes the the dismantling waste. When they take these structures apart, 
even the internal structures of the reactor become highly radioactive waste. And all of that stuff, all of that radioactive rubble is going to be buried right right on the shores of Lake Huron. And one has to ask yourself, what kind of civilization would have the insanity to put their uh, waste dump right beside the drinking water? And that's what they're uh, uh, planning to do here. So um, the, the most shocking thing about the federal panel um, is that when you read it, it just sounds like a... Uh, they 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 have no balance in their in their uh, document. They simply embrace the concept wholeheartedly, as if it was common sense that uh, anybody in the right mind would want to do this. Whereas, in fact, 134 municipalities, both in the United States and Canada, uh, have already passed resolutions denouncing this idea because of the importance of the Great Lakes water for 40 million people who use it as a source of drinking water. And uh, also, we've had uh, senators and congressmen in the United States, as well as politicians in Canada, speaking out against this as well. So this is far from a done deal. In fact, uh, uh, one of the newspaper reports described it as that we are now embarked upon at least a decade-long struggle to see who is going to, whose will is going to prevail here. Is it going to be the will of the nuclear industry? Uh, or is it going to be the will of the people who actually live uh, around the Great Lakes? And uh, that, that struggle is far from over. Um, but there's one thing that uh, has become increasingly apparent in recent years, and that is that the government of Canada, who appointed this panel, and who has changed the rules of, of environmental assessment so that it's completely under the control of the nuclear establishment, which includes the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which is part and parcel of the nuclear establishment here in Canada, um, really that, uh, that there's no distinction between the government and the industry. And that's the reason why we are seeing uh, shoddy work being done, shoddy thinking taking place on the subject. Uh, it was brought to the attention of the panel that was considering approving this uh, proposal that in Germany, they have had two deep underground repositories which have catastrophically failed, and they, they are now removing the nuclear waste from these deep underground repositories at Assa and at Gorsleben in Germany. Also, the only deep geological repository for nuclear waste in North America is located at Carlsbad, New Mexico, and just last year they had an accident where a waste drum underground exploded and radioactive plutonium-laden dust made its way more than 700 meters uh, uh, vertically upwards to contaminate 22 workers at the surface and then drifted downwind to contaminate the town of Carlsbad, New Mexico, 20 miles away. And this is a repository which has been in operation for only 10 years and is supposed to be safe for 10,000 years. And uh, <laughs> already they have contaminated the inner workings of this repository to the point where they won't be able to even consider reopening it until 2018. So these kind of lessons from other from other jurisdictions seem to not be registering with uh, with our authorities here in Canada. In fact, the United States government has tried eight times to locate a deep underground waste repository for high-level nuclear waste, um, and they have failed all eight times. And this has taken place over a period of 60 years. 
So speaking of the uh, the number eight, uh, the, the one of the last things uh, we'll have time to talk about, unfortunately, um, uh, again, we're speaking to Dr. Gordon Edwards from the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. Uh, the number eight was the CNSC relicensing of eight Bruce reactors uh, as well, <laughs> right. and uh, and for another five years. Uh, can you talk about some of the details there, and then I, and then I want to come back to a to a cost question. Uh, we'll bring it back to renewables for our for our last question. Sure. Okay. Well. Uh... Yeah, this is a decision which hasn't yet been rendered, but uh, judging by all past experience, we're expecting a rubber stamp approval by the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, who doesn't seem to have a staff that, uh, that, uh, that really holds the industry's feet to the fire at all. As a matter of fact, when you look at the uh, transcript of the hearings, you find out that the, the staff of the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which is the regulatory body, never ask any hard questions of the industry. They simply chime in and support the industry as if they were both on the same team. And in fact, they are. And that's the problem, because there are very serious safety considerations with the Bruce reactors, which have not been looked after. I'll just give, mention a couple. It's now come to light that uh, in the event of a severe nuclear accident, which of course is un- improbable, but which can always happen, um, that there would be a lot more hydrogen gas generated, like many multiples of the hydrogen gas that was generated at the Fukushima reactor, and that's because the Kandu reactor has a lot more small pipes in it which react with steam to produce hydrogen gas. What happens is the water reacts with the metal to turn into an oxide and releases the hydrogen, and that hydrogen gas is explosive. And if you had an explosion at the Bruce reactors from the hydrogen gas that is generated during a severe accident, it would simply blow the structure to kingdom come, and you would not have any effective containment of the radioactivity inside. Now, this problem can be mitigated. It can be improved, and uh, the industry is simply turning a blind eye to it. They're not really making those necessary improvements. And that's only one of about 40 serious safety issues which have been raised not by anti-nuclear people, but by people who have actually worked and support the nuclear industry for for decades, uh, these questions have been raised and they have not yet been addressed. So we're hoping that uh, that public pressure might prevail, where uh, the the kind of uh, nuclear establishment which is just go 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 ahead and open these things and rerun them and run them into the ground if necessary seems to be the prevailing attitude. So, uh, Gordon, I want to thank you again so much for your time. I'll just have uh, we'll just have time for one final sort of quick uh, question, which was about sort of the the context of your work. Which is uh, for anyone that is not already uh, aware, uh, you should totally, if you're interested in uh, nuclear issues and you want to stay up to date, uh, the email list that the uh, CCNR puts together is extremely comprehensive, well linked, uh, and uh, and well resourced. So, I'd highly recommend uh, checking that out. We will link to it on today's show post if people are interested in getting on that email list. Yes, you um, can you can share my email address. And uh, also, I I would like to point out to people that I happen to live in Quebec right now, and we have a huge surplus of water power, water-generated hydroelectricity. And if if Ontario simply bought this water power from Quebec, it would save both both provinces a lot of money and would would allow for the shutting down of the Darlington reactors instead of refurbishing them as is now planned. 
All right. And, uh, and yes, we'll put the information so people can get on it. Do highly recommend it uh, as well. We just have time for a very quick sort of final question, uh, which I wanted to ask you, which was, uh, you know, we were talking about at the beginning there about sort of the, the, the really the best argument that nuclear has is uh, its ability to provide um, – uh, baseload, what's called baseload energy, and that how with the advancement in storage technology that this advantage is quickly being lost, if not if it hasn't already been lost. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you sort of you know sort of a half humorous question was to what extent do you find that you are now almost by default by necessity a, a as much a renewable energy activist as you are an anti nuclear activist? Well, as a matter of fact, we always have been that the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility from day one we always advocated a switch to renewables as being the uh, absolutely necessary way to go. Um, nuclear often holds itself up as an alternative to fossil fuels, but as a matter of fact, both of them are technologies which threaten the entire planet. In the case of nuclear, it's not only because of these horrendous accidents like the Fukushima disaster, but it's also because nuclear contributes directly to the spread of nuclear weapons materials. Every nuclear reactor produces plutonium. Plutonium has a 24,000-year half-life, and so we're spreading around the world the materials needed to make nuclear weapons, and this could be done any time in the future for thousands of years to come. So this is a crazy technology. It's not one that we should be endorsing. The thing about uh, solar energy and wind energy is we don't have to worry about what to do about the used sunbeams or the used, the used gusts of wind. They're perfectly safe. <laughs> Well, well, we'll see if your position changes when the uh, the military has their solar powered tanks. But uh, anyway, that's for now. It's been an absolute pleasure, as usual, to talk to you again, uh, Doctor Gordon Edwards, uh, with the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. Thank you so much. Thanks, for your Darren. Bye bye. All right. So we're going to go quickly now to our second and final music break. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful community radio partner, uh, partners all the way across the country. For if you want to learn more, if you missed anything, if you're interested in uh, looking up any of our guests or any of the topics that we talk about, of course, make sure you check out greenmajority.ca where you can also find out about some of our other shows, the ongoing climate cartoons, some of the other wonderful things we've uh, we've all been working on. Uh, we're going to come back and do a little bit more uh, sort of wrap up of some uh, some news items. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on the Green Majority. Pretty frightening, but you know the chances are so small. Stuck by bee sting, nothing but a bee thing. Better chance you're gonna buy it at the mall. But it's a 23 or 4 to 1 that you can fall in love by the end of this song. So get up, get up, tell the bookie put a bet on that a damn thing will go wrong. The odds are that we will probably be alright. Odds are we gonna be alright. Odds are we gonna be alright tonight. Hit by the A-train, crashed in an airplane. I wouldn't recommend either one. Killed by a great white or a meteorite. I guess there ain't a way to go that's fun. But somewhere in the world, someone is gonna fall in love by the end of this song. So get up, get up, no one's never gonna let them, so you might as well sing along. The odds are that we will probably be alright. Odds are we gonna be alright. The odds are that we will probably be alright Odds are we gonna be alright Odds are we gonna be alright for another night Sure, 
pretty frightening, but you know the chances are so small. Hit by the A train, crashed in an airplane, better chance you're gonna buy it at the mall. But it's a 23 or 4 to 1 that you can fall in love by the end of this song. So get up, get up, no I'm never gonna let up, so you might as well sing along. All right, we're back here on the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. Stefan is busy dancing. We'll go to him in a minute. Uh, when are we going to get live streaming up in the studio? I don't know. I feel like we could probably get it done, though. You know what I'm going to do right now? Aside from doing a call-out for uh, uh, music recommendations, if, you wanna, if you'd like to suggest a Canadian song, if you also think that if you're someone that... Because that, we don't really know a lot about where... We know how many listeners we have. We have a rough idea of some of those general things. We don't actually know a lot of details about our listeners. Um, so if, if, if watching a live stream, if, if watching us sort of be goofy and, and sort of chatting around in between the show and stuff, if that's of any interest to you, because I know some people do that, we actually have the ability to do it. I'll go ahead and... I'll, I'll go ahead and hook it up. But if you have any thoughts about that or anything else, we do actually, uh, uh, I get, uh, Stefan's actually seen me how excited and sort of like clap my hands I get when we get uh, audience listener email. So please do go ahead. Even if it's just keep up the good work, even if it's just I tuned into your program for the first time today and I can't believe what a load of nonsense it is. You guys suck. Uh, yeah, I will still be happier having no, hey, somebody listened to the show and emailed us. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually being completely serious. So please go ahead and email us, greenmajority.ca. There's a uh, contact us button there. Uh, we've got about eight minutes left in time, maybe a hair less than that. So we talked about the, uh, the sort of immediate reaction to the NDP win in Alberta, um, which is sort of extremely important, of course, because of Alberta's role in Canadian economy, not just because we're, we're not a politics show, but it, has, it potentially has huge implications. So let's, with our last few minutes here, let's talk implications. Steph, I'm going to start with you. Mm. What, do you what do you think, now that we know, because we, we did some speculating the other day on the bonus show, but now that we know um, from what you've seen, what is your feeling as to whether or not this will have impact, and if and if you'd like to say what that impact will be on the federal election coming up. Yeah, uh, I, I, what I love about that song is that song is basically I feel sort of what was singing through progressives' minds all all on Tuesday night uh, that we all we all can be all right, <laughs> at least for at least for one night. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, it was funny to watch sort of people be like, "Wait, is this what winning feels like?" Uh, which is always a funny feeling to watch a bunch of environmentalists who are used to losing all the time uh, get get a <laughs> uh, get a little notch of hey look something happened that's positive. Um, so uh, as far as as far as whether or not I think it's gonna wh- how what kind of impact it can have on the Canadian election, I think the impact might be. Uh, I think it can de- might definitely exist. The polling doesn't really currently show that it really has had much impact. Uh, but I think what what might more likely might more likely show actually is the. Um, is that it might galvanize uh, people to actually action put on action now. I think it might bring progressive around to thinking maybe this is a fight we can win. Maybe this is a fight that I can that I, that I'm going to take a part of, and it might actually help uh, with volunteers and sort of some of the other programs that are going on now. Actually, recruiting people to sort of fight for a stronger win. Uh, I think you know if as soon as you convince people that maybe they can make a difference, which I think this uh, this number this part shows that you that actual action can make a difference. Uh, it might actually bring out more people to the cause and you might actually get a stronger team uh, pushing for these sorts for, for these changes uh, whether or not it's going to change sort of Canadians minds all, all around I'm I'm less certain uh, but the other thing I just want to sort of reiterate from the beginning of this uh, which is that we live like everyone always acts as if Canada is different from the states because the states because everyone talks about states rights having all the power in the United States and then how Canada is more centralized government that is completely wrong 
Well, not completely wrong, but it's, it's very incorrect to Large, say. Largely wrong. Largely wrong. Uh, the provinces have insane amounts of power here in, in Canada, uh, especially when it comes to climate change. The provinces control energy. Like if, if if every province decided to put if every province decided to take an action on uh, and change their fossil fuels from, from to renewables, the federal government couldn't do anything to stop it. Uh, at least like like unless we're like unless we're gonna go crazy about it, but like it's there's so much actual power to affect to do real effective change on a provincial level that if a bunch of provinces get together to actually want to real ch- see real change on on climate change, it, the federal government can still be a Harper government. It would not matter. Uh, you know, they'll do other things that I won't like, but that's the, but in, on a climate change issue as well. Provinces have so much power uh, that even you know, for me at least, it, it gives me hope. Even if the federal, even if the federal election uh, goes in any way, shape, or form, the fact that we're sort of seeing some progressives win on the on the provincial level. All right, we've got about four and a half minutes. I have uh, two extremely quick comments, and then we're going to let Kevin run out the clock here. One of them was that uh, I think the big takeaway from the Alberta election was not that now, now that the NDP is the majority government, that th- everything is going to come up roses. I think the more important takeaway message, like we're going to have to wait and see what happens here. I, 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 I think it's very, very early to make any you know cheering too much. The thing that we sh- the Canadians should be taking away from this win was that dynasties fall. <laughs> and that it is successful if we can actually like activate it is possible right and i think so many people stay home because they think their vote doesn't matter well guess what here's an example of your vote mattering so that's lesson one lesson two was uh my position which has been uh, a flutter on twitter as well which was uh people who were saying i used to be a liberal voter now that c51 has passed congratulations here comes prime minister uh tom Mulcair. Um, because a lot of people are really upset after being sort of uh, enlivened by this opportunity uh, of like, oh, wow, we, you know, we can actually change governments and have something other than, than sort of a party A or party B. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau going out and doing what m- many people have described as hideous things uh, on policy and then trying to, you know, cover it up by offering people pot. Um, I think he's made an extremely poor calculation on that. But uh, we've got about four minutes left. Kevin, and I will give you the entirety of that time. Whoa. <laughs> so much on the table. Um, so the original question was, uh, you know, is there, any, is there any follow-on effect from the Alberta election on, in federal politics? And yes, yes and no. Yes, if for no other reason than everyone is going to keep asking that question. Uh, and so the federal leaders <clears throat> excuse me, will do what politicians always do. They'll, they'll each try to co-opt um, the the uh, results of that election for their for their own for their own purposes. So obviously, uh, Mulcair is trying to you know burnish the halo. You know, he's 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 trying to bask in the halo glow effect of an NDP win. And uh, you know, Trudeau's out there saying, "Oh, you know, it was such a great positive campaign." And and he's all he's all saying, "Oh, this is you know, look at look at the look at the effects of positivism in in politics, which is which is part of his his." Uh, uh, part of what he's trying to sell with his campaign. So, of course, it will have an effect in the sense that people will ask about it and peop- and, and everyone's going to try to wrap themselves up in that narrative in some way to suit their purposes. So there's perception. And since politics is about narrative and perception, it will have that effect. Uh, in reality, I mean, let's, let's, look, let's look at this. I don't, I don't think this is actually some great endorsement of people's votes counting. The, if, you, if you break this down proportionally, more people voted for the Wild Roads and the PCs than voted for the NDP. Uh, I'm not complaining about an NDP government in Alberta, but but you know, frankly, I'd much rather have seen <clears throat> you know proportional representation than you know whatever my partisan views might be, whatever my ideology might be. I'd still rather see uh, electoral reform. Uh, it, right now, today, I don't think it would be possible for the Wild Rose and the PCs to have formed a coalition. 
So if proportional representation had been in place in Alberta, I don't think they could have formed a coalition government to... to so one of, I think we would have a minority uh, uh, NDP government with one of those parties holding the balance of power. And I think that reality would still be in place. And so when you look at what this means federally, well, that vote split doesn't exist on the federal level. So, so you know, the people, people thinking this has, you know, some obvious translation into federal politics, it does because of perception and narrative and how the various leaders are going to try to wrap themselves up in, in, in the narrative that they're spinning for this, this win. But electorally, you know, there is no wild rose conservative split in Alberta. Uh, so, so I, I don't see this being uh, some huge, some, so, so showing some huge groundswell of support for for the NDP necessarily uh, when that vote split is gone. Um, uh, sorry, I had another point, but it just uh, it just it just escaped me. Um, well, unfortunately, we're into the last thirty seconds, so maybe we'll have to we'll have to save that for next week's bonus show, or, or perhaps you can write a blog about it. Kevin's been very prolific uh, as well as writing blog articles. We are right up against the end of the show, though, so we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for listening to the Green Majority here on CIOT, one of our wonderful community partners. We'll see everybody next week.